Revelation chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, please open to Revelation 2 or grab one of the Bibles in the seat pockets uh, in front of you. Uh, We are in week 3 of our series called Overcomer. Seven letters written to seven churches. This is uh, the beginning of us walking through the book of Revelation. Um, This has been an incredibly uh, challenging series for me to do, um, mainly because uh, each one of these letters that are written to churches at some point may apply individually to us or to the church as a whole. It's not just for churches that, were, uh, that existed 2,000 years ago. Each one of these principles, each one of these areas that Jesus um, either praises them for or corrects them for can apply to us. We just have to ask ourselves where it falls. Um, the seven letters to the seven churches are powerful. Just to give a little brief background again, Revelation was written by the Apostle John. It was downloaded from heaven from Jesus. An angel gives it to John is what we see. While John is in prison on the Isle of Patmos, breaking rocks, almost 90 years old, that's what he was doing, he gets this revelation from God through an angel, and he writes the book of Revelation. Seven individual letters go out to seven real churches in seven real cities, and the message goes back to those churches to encourage um, all of them, but to also give correction to five of the seven. Um, Last two weeks or two, two messages ago, we looked at the church of Ephesus, and Ephesus was the church that lost their first love. They were very good at the things that they did in terms of being diligent and serving, but they lost their first love. So God, or Jesus, praised them for their service. He praised them for their, 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 their uh, tireless work, but he said, you walked away from your first love. The second church we looked at was Smyrna, and Smyrna was one of the only two churches in the list that there was no correction to. Smyrna was a beautiful city. These people experienced great persecution, and the church, even though they persecuted, were persecuted, did not fall away from the faith. Jesus refers to them in Revelation 2 when he talks of Smyrna, and he said, Smyrna, though you are poor, you are rich. Smyrna was a very wealthy area, but the Christians were very poor. And the commendation and the praise Jesus gives is, you may be poor, but you're actually rich. Why? Because you're being persecuted for my name, and there will be a reward for your faithfulness. This morning, we're going to turn the corner, and we're going to look at the third church. We're going to look at the church of Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And the message that I'm talking about today is called Corruption by Compromise. Now, I think we understand the idea and the concept of corruption uh, in the world that we live in today, especially this high-tech world. Corruption is a pretty, pretty commonly used word. Data corruption happens all the time. Maybe you got a letter from one of your banks one time saying that your, your information was compromised or corrupted. Uh, maybe you're like me and spent many, many years with Windows-based machines and a virus got in and corrupted your files. Anybody have that problem? I used to have antivirus software all the time that needed to be updated. Why? Because if I didn't, uh, if I didn't uh, plan and if I wasn't diligent, someone would corrupt my data. So after many, many years of living the pagan Windows life, I finally converted to Mac. And and the angels came down, and and there was no antivirus necessary for a long time. And it was wonderful. Um, I know that's changed a little bit. Uh, But data can be corrupted, right? We understand that. It's not a pleasant experience, but it happens. Um, In our culture, we understand government corruption. Corruption and government seem to go hand in hand sometimes. 
when you talk about governments, and I'm not just talking about our government, uh, but many governments. I remember in our last presidential election um, hearing, um, hearing one of the candidates make a, conf- uh, a comment about Washington not recognizing until he walked into the process just how corrupt our government was. And I thought that was pretty eye-opening and enlightening. But it's not just our country. Uh, we have issues. Other countries can be very corrupt as well. Um, a third area maybe would be law enforcement. You know, I love our first responders, and I love law enforcement and police. Uh, my brother-in-law is a retired police officer. Uh, but there are elements of corruption across that, that business and that industry as well in our country. My point in saying is maybe you have another example. Corruption is something we understand, but it's also something that can influence the church as well. You can have a corrupt church a church that has compromised in some way. And this is the message that Jesus is writing to the church of Pergamum. So we're going to begin looking at Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Jesus writes, To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Stop there for a second. Um, The last two letters that we looked at each had an intro and an opening. I'm not sure if you remember them or not, but each opening was more um, upbeat, more positive, more affirming in the beginning. You know, it was the one who held the seven lampstands and lights in his hand, talking about the seven churches, reminding people who Jesus is in a very positive way, encouraging the churches. This opening is a little bit more direct. And Jesus is writing to the people and he's saying to this church, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. What is that synonymous with? It's referring to the word of God that comes from his lips, that the word of God is as sharp as a double-edged sword. So what he's basically telling them is, I am an authority, and this is coming from the one who has all authority. So let's read on. Verse 13. I know where you live. (laughs) We have to read on. Where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So what is he saying first? He's saying, I'm one of authority and I'm speaking to you with authority. Church in Pergamum, know this. You have remained true to my name even though you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Think about that. Can you imagine if Jesus came and wrote a letter to us and, and we got the letter and we opened it up and he said, Dear Bridge Community Church, I know you live in the city where Satan has his throne. You're like, what is that about? Regardless of what's happening around you, you've been faithful to my name and you won't renounce my name. Doesn't that make you feel encouraged? And it would encourage these people because when we look a little bit about Pergamum, it's important for us to understand what was happening in that city. Now, Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. It was the capital of that entire region. Ephesus was the hub of trade, as we heard. Smyrna was the most beautiful city, but Pergamum was the actual capital. And it wasn't just the physical capital. It was the spiritual capital of Asia Minor as well. There were three different areas, just to name three, that were main focuses of pagan worship that the Christians had to navigate. And I'm going to give all three examples just briefly. First, the altar to Zeus was built in Pergamum. 
Now, some of you know from Greek mythology who Zeus was. When I grew up in, in elementary school, I heard about Zeus. And in Greek mythology, he was the god of the sky. He was the god of lightning and thunder. He was the guy with the lightning bolts. Anyone know what I'm talking about? He's also the king of the gods of Mount Olympus. Zeus was the guy. He's the big guy. So they built an altar to him. And the altar was 117 feet wide and 110 feet long, and it stood 40 feet high. And I have an artist's rendition of what that actual altar looked like. Okay, this is the altar to Zeus, and it was in Pergamum, the greatest god in Greek mythology. Over 100 feet wide, over 100 feet long, and 40 feet tall. Now, what was really interesting about this is the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, there were excavations that were done in Pergamum, and they found the altar of Zeus. And the man who excavated it was German, and he worked for the Berlin Museum. And what they actually did, the archaeologists, was they agreed with the Turkish government to work it out so that they could remove and disassemble a portion of this altar and move it to Berlin. And today, it's on display at the museum in Berlin. They took the front half of it, and they rebuilt it inside the museum. So that's the actual rebuilt altar in the, Ber- the Berlin Museum. Isn't that incredible? Like, that's what it is. Now, those are real people in this picture, okay? Those aren't like little tiny people, you know, or a little model. Just to give you an idea of the scale, look at the size of this altar. This was just one of the altars and one of the temples that was used for pagan worship while the Christians lived in Pergamum. Another example that I just want to give you, and I don't have a photo of it, um, was a temple for the god of healing. His name was uh, Asclepius or Asclepius. Uh, And this is what we know about him. According to the ancient myth of Asclepius, the god Asclepius had the power to raise people from the dead. And he himself was restored to life by Zeus. For this reason, he was thought to also be in the form of a snake. So tame snakes were kept in the temple. And what they did was they took tame, non-venomous snakes and they put them in the temple. And if you were sick, you would go into the temple, lay down, and the snakes would crawl over you and they believed that would make you well. So anybody else signing up for that idea? Nope, not me. I don't care if they're venomous or non-venomous, not interested. But this is what they did. And the reason why they thought that the snake was the symbol was because they would shed and they would regrow their skin and it was like a form of healing. So... If you were in Pergamon and you were a Christian, you had the altar of Zeus to contend with. You also had the temple of Asclepius where people were looking to be healed by laying down with snakes. And you also had the origins of the emperor cult. The emperor cult was a law that they put in place or a rule that once a year they had to burn incense to the Caesar of all of Rome. And when you burned incense to the Caesar, what you were saying is, Caesar is Lord. That's what you would do. So imagine, if you will, being a Christian in a city where there was this huge temple that people would go and worship, pagan worship. They would also go into the other temple and they would believe healing came from this other God. And once a year, you were required to burn incense to the Caesar of Rome, making the declaration that he is Lord. That's a problem for Christians. Because Christians don't acknowledge a man as Lord. The only Lord in Christianity is who? Jesus. Jesus is the only Lord. So they didn't do that. 
In fact, if they were faithful to Jesus and they held on to sound doctrine and to the Christ, they would refuse that. But refusing to burn incense could result in significant persecution or sometimes death. And that's what the writer is saying here. And what Jesus is saying through John is that you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even during the days of Antipas, my, fav- my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Antipas was a bishop in that city, okay? And this is so amazing. It's, it's, it's incredibly horrific. But as a man who would not bow to the laws of the land and refuse to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, Christian tradition says that, and Christian history says, that he was placed inside a hollow bull and roasted to death. For his faith. We don't understand persecution in our country. And yet, in the midst of this world, this church remained faithful. Isn't that incredible? And the words of Jesus to Pergamum was, You are faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful. You remain true to my name. They are a church that held on to their faith even during great persecution. But there was also something that they needed to address, a correction that Jesus brings them in verse 14. Look what it says. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the, Nicolaite, of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. I've tried to do that for a week and I can't say it right. Nicolaitans. There we go. Nicolaitans. So basically what's happening here is there's two groups of people. They are in the church. And they're teaching two, different, two specific things that are identical, really. The, the principle is the same. There's the people that hold to the teaching of Balaam and there's people that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, and this is why this is, this is important. Because if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that Balaam was a guy that was a sorcerer. And he was a sorcerer that was for hire. Balaam's thing was money. He wanted to be paid for what he did. So in the Old Testament, if you go to the Old Testament, you can see where Balaam was actually paid by a guy named Balak to pronounce curses over Israel. And the first thing he did was he went to God and the Lord said, no, you can't go. So he said, okay. And then Balak came back and said, what if we give you more money? What if we increase what you're going to get from us? And then Balaam said, hold that thought. And he went back to to the Lord. And he said, Lord, what about now? Can I go now? I mean, this is a silly conversation, right? But God says, okay, go. But you can only say what I tell you to say. So he says, okay. So he goes to a mountaintop. And instead of pronouncing curses over Israel, he pronounces blessing over Israel. And Balak's ticked off. So they go to another mountaintop. And this happens again. Blessings instead of cursing. So Balak is like, I paid this guy all this money. And you're not, even cursing the, you're not even cursing Israel. And he says, well, I can't. I told you. I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. So if that was the end of the story, we would think that was a great thing. But if you fast forward in the book of Numbers past 11 and 13 and get to chapter 31, what you see, and this is incredible, is that there was still a way that Balaam figured out to entice Israel to sin against God. He said to Balak, he says, you know what? I can't pronounce curses on them, but here's something that might work. Take all of your good-looking women and bring them into the nation of Israel and entice the men with those women. They'll marry some. They'll have families with others. And they'll worship pagan gods. And you know what? It worked. It worked. And Israel compromised 
And because of the compromise where they let something into Israel, they got corrupted. And this is what it means when we're talking about the teaching of Balaam. The the Nicolaitans are exactly the same thing. They were a group of people connected with the church, and they corrupted the church from the inside out. Here's what they were saying. One example from the early church fathers said this about the Nicolaitans. Their teachings said, what does it hurt to make a few compromises if it will purchase you some peace with your neighbors? Could you imagine that teaching first? People are being persecuted all around you, right? All these gods and these altars. And they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're all believers. We all believe in Jesus, but let's get real about it. What does it matter or hurt if you make a few compromises? It'll purchase some peace with your neighbors. Maybe you just need to accommodate people that are around you. It says believers were tempted to compromise their faith, to spare themselves trouble, and just to get along with their neighbors. And that's what the Nicolaitans were saying. They're saying, you can still love Jesus and not rock the boat. You can still love Jesus and go to the altar and worship, and it's okay. You can still love Jesus and you can still burn the incense to the Caesar, and that's okay. And you see what they're saying is, it's okay to compromise a few little things because ultimately Jesus is still Jesus, and it's okay to allow those things to happen. Nothing is going to happen to the church. And Jesus speaks to it with such intent to say, here's what I have against you. You've allowed compromise to weave its way through the church and you've been corrupted as a result of that. In short, they've been corrupted by compromise. Corruption by compromise. And you know, we can look at our lives today, today in the world that we live in and we can ask ourselves the exact same question. Do we compromise on things in our world, and I mean in our church, in our hearts especially, where we know what truth is, or we think we know what truth is, and we just allow things into our lives. We say, well, it's really not that bad of a deal if I participate in this thing, or I allow myself to look upon that thing. And all of those things we're talking about are not godly things, but we allow ourselves to entertain them. We allow our eyes to entertain them. We allow our ears or our hands. We participate. We invest in things. We spend our money on things. And we go, is there really that big of a deal if we do those things? I think it's a legitimate question. And I've been asking myself this as we go through this this series. And I'm saying, wow, every week I have to do this. And I'm like, oh, God, this is hard. Isn't this an encouraging message today? (laughs) And I go, Lord, this is, this is a good word, but it's a hard word for us to hear sometimes. The point I'm trying to make here is that the people of the church of Pergamum were guilty of tolerating behavior that was not acceptable to God. They didn't do anything about it. They embraced some of the teaching and they allowed it to run through the church. So as I think upon Pergamum, I look at myself today and I ask myself the question and I want to ask you the same thing. How do I know if I'm compromising? How do I know in my spiritual walk if I am compromising? How do you know if you're compromising? And I just jotted down a few things to think about, but these are some of the things that I I wrote down. If my life looks the same as the people around me, maybe I've compromised. And what I mean by that is not the church, not the believers, If my life outside the church looks 
Acts lives like everyone around me who doesn't know Jesus. And the only difference is that I come to church on a Sunday or I might participate here or do a little thing, but then I just go back to my regular life and everything looks the same. If the people around me don't know how I live differently or that I am different, I've probably compromised something in my spiritual walk. Now, I'm not talking about an ascetic lifestyle where we separate ourselves from the world. I'm saying Jesus said about his followers, he said this, you are a city on a hill, right? And he said, you are what? The light of the world. And the last time I checked, light looks very different than darkness, right? Light and darkness are different. He also said that you are salt to the world. What is he saying? It's your role and responsibility through me to influence the culture, not let the culture influence you. So I ask myself this question. Have I compromised? Have I compromised any part of my life? Have I allowed things into my life? Have I allowed things to to get into my heart that shouldn't be there? And if by doing so, corrupted part of my walk in response or in relationship with God. Another thing I looked at if I know I'm compromising is that I spend all of my time encouraging others, but never convicting others. Now, conviction and condemnation are different. God doesn't call any of us to condemn anybody. Condemnation and conviction are different in this way. Conviction says I made a mistake. Condemnation says I am a mistake. And we're not supposed to condemn others. But if all I do is encourage others, and hey, you're doing a great job and that's great, but I never ask the question that needs to be asked or hold them accountable, am I compromising? Do I spend my time listening to others, but I never challenge them? How many times have you had people in your life, maybe in my life as well, I'm thinking, where they just want someone to talk to, and as you're listening, you're saying, there's some really messed up stuff that you're hearing that they need to change. And you just kind of smile and nod your head, and then when they come back later, you smile and nod your head, and when they come back later, you smile. But you never speak truth to them. You never challenge them or call them up to a new place. You're just, a mount, you're just an ear for them to continue to talk. Maybe we've compromised. And Jesus was speaking to the church in Pergamum saying, you have a responsibility as the church to not compromise, but also to deal with the teachings that are not true to my word. So are you guys with me so far? Everyone's good? Okay, I hope so. Good. So this doesn't give us license to be critical or destructive, okay, in the way that we do this. Oh, you mean we can just point? No, no, that has nothing to do with that. I'm going to explain that in just a little bit. Um, but, but there is a response we have to say, uh, we have to have, if we find ourselves struggling with compromise. And the answer to that is found in verse 16. Look what John says. He says, repent, therefore. Jesus says this through John. The answer to if you've allowed compromise into your life is to repent, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So he's saying to the church that's remained faithful, repent, change the way you are, and deal with the issues. If you don't deal with them, I'm going to deal with them. So really what he's doing is he's calling the church that's not renouncing his faith, their faith to go and deal with those that are speaking controversial things that take people away from Jesus. I mean, he's telling them, you have a responsibility to get the poison out. Go to them, talk, do what has to happen so that people are no longer engaging in compromise. If you have people who are coming to participate in worship and then go back into the world to live like the world, 
you have to repent. You have to change your ways or there is no, or there is a consequence to it. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, um, I'll talk to you in a, in a few minutes, but I, this message is really towards the believers. It's really towards the Christian church. Um, if you don't know Jesus or you don't have a relationship with Christ, uh, this part of it doesn't really apply to you as much, uh, but you can become a part of the faith simply by trusting in Christ. But he's really speaking to the church, to the believing church. This is a message not to tolerate things. We live in a world where tolerate is a buzzword for everything, don't we? The church has to become more tolerant of everything. That we don't want to confront or stir the waters or say difficult things. We don't want people to look badly upon us. And I struggle with that because, you know, some people will take that and they'll swing the pendulum the other direction and they'll envision people with fists open and they, you know, pump and they want to do things that are, that are offensive. You don't need to be offensive in your presentation to still be offensive to people in your, in your words. The words alone can be offensive to people. The intent is not to offend. You hear my heart? Like my intent is never to offend in this. But Jesus said a lot of things and he didn't do it screaming at the top of his lungs. He didn't do it with his fists clenched. He said truth and truth in itself creates arguments, creates struggle, creates tension. And it's important for us to remember that, yes, we need to be aware and we need to walk this out, but we have to be careful to know that the presentation of it is done in a way that honors Jesus. I struggle with this in the church today, in the modern church, because I look at and I ask myself the question, I go, where are we as bridge? Where are we in our culture? There is a shift that we see in our churches that, that become more focused, it seems, on the method and not as strong on the message. And what I mean by that is not just, well, we talk about Jesus. You know, it's not like we don't talk about Jesus. The method is how we appear to the people around us. The method is what do people think of the church by when they come and attend. The message is not just Jesus rose from the dead. The message is also combined with the power of knowing Jesus. When the Apostle Paul went and visited places, he did two things. He spoke the message of the gospel, and it was accompanied with signs and wonders. When the Apostle Paul went to places, he spoke the message and it was accompanied by signs and wonders. Now, I'm not saying every miracle he did has to be the way it looks today every time. God is a God of miracles and he still does miracles today, amen? And he should do miracles because he's God and he never changes. And he says we need to trust and we need to move. But I wonder if maybe one of the ways we've compromised, and I'm just looking to myself and I'm looking around, I go, what role do I have in it? Is the method so much of the priority? in the way that today's church is focusing, that the message of Jesus is there, but the power is gone. Paul talks about this in Timothy when he talks about the last days. He says what will be happening across churches and faith is that they will have a form of godliness, but it will be absent of its power. And I'm challenged by that to say, are we looking at both? Yes, we need to be relational to people. We need to be relevant. The church should, today should not look like you're walking into a building and doing things that your grandparents did. We don't do that in our lives. The last time I checked, most people don't use rotary phones. In the first service, we had a few. But generally speaking, we don't use rotary phones anymore. We don't. 
It's become a thing that most people in our culture don't even use a non-smartphone. If you use a flip phone, it's like, well, you're like so like 2005. (laughs) Whoa, you know? We change and evolve with the culture. Apple just released and announced their new iPhone coming out. It's going to be the greatest thing in the whole world. It solves every problem you've ever had. And it's coming out, and it's available to you, and it's cheaper than the last one. How many people go, nope, nope, I'm fine with my, with my BlackBerry. <laughs> Do you, some of you probably don't even know what a BlackBerry is. I'm fine with that. No, we change with the culture because the culture changes with us. We have to, as a church, adapt new methods. So I'm not shooting down methods and technology. I think we need all of that stuff to continue to connect with people where they are. The Apostle Paul said it over and over again. I became all things to all men, so by doing so I might win some to the faith. He's saying strip away all the obstacles that you need, but he didn't compromise on the message and the power of God. And that's important for us to remember that these things matter above all other things. So how can we keep from being a compromising church? There are five things I want to mention to you this morning on how we can keep from being a compromising church. And I'm going to mention them briefly. Number one, we need to know God's word. How can I keep myself from being a compromising Christian? I need to know God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God has to be our foundation that we build on. The word of God has to be the authority that we start with. And you might say, but there's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. And, you know, I'm not going to go killing my kid if they don't obey me. This is about not just knowing that the word of God is the authority. It's about understanding what the Bible is and how to understand and interpret scripture. It's not just knowing verses. I can quote some crazy verses in Jesus' name and be totally misguided. You know, there's no box of snakes on our, on, our, uh, on our stage today, and there never will be, because that's a misinterpretation of Scripture when we say modern churches can pull venomous snakes out. That's a misinterpretation of Scripture. There's lots of stuff we can misinterpret. My point is we have to know God's Word. We have to know what the truth of God's Word is, and if we don't commit the Word of God to our hearts, how do we know if we're compromising? How will I know if I'm compromising if I don't know what His Word really says? In a world where we know sports statistics, in a world where we know music, we know lyrics, we know all kinds of details and financial and economics and news, and we can quote things backwards and forwards, do we quote and know the word of God the way that he's called us to know it? I'm challenged by that personally, and I want to challenge you with that. Do we know the word of God? We have to know it. There's no way to know if you're speeding if you don't know what the speed limit is. Number two, we cannot remain silent on sin. We cannot remain silent on sin. Yes, this is the truth that we need to keep the message of the gospel as the center. Jesus Christ is the power for people. It is the message of the gospel that saves and changes people. But we cannot forget that after the gospel message in the New Testament, there's four books in the New Testament, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After that, there are 23 more books in the New Testament, and most of those books focus on how you now live as a follower of Christ. It deals with sin. It deals with repentance. It deals with lifestyle issues, things that we need to deal with. Many of those books focus on that. For the next 23 books, most of them say, now that you're a follower of Christ, here's how you live. Basically, you were once in slavery, and now you've been freed. You were once dead, now you're made alive. Here's how a free person lives. Here's how a living person lives. 
Just like in the Old Testament, they were pulled out of Egypt into the wilderness after 400 plus years of being in slavery. And God speaks to them through the law. And he says, through Moses and the law. And he says, now that you've been taken out of slavery and you're free, live like free men and women, not like slaves. So we can't remain silent on sin. Now, this is a fine line because this is where it gets a little dangerous in the church. When we talk about things that are sinful, we can tend to use the term legalistic. And maybe you are one of those people or maybe you've heard people say that. So if someone comes up and said, you know, you shouldn't be doing this because this. And your response might be, you know, that's just so legalistic. I'm I'm not going to be legalistic about it. And we use the term legalistic. We actually misuse the term legalistic. Legalism really just means that your actions and your words directly influence your salvation. That's true legalism. Like what the Galatians were doing, or the, uh, those that were opposing in Galatia, those that were coming, the Judaizers, they were talking about legalism. You must have Jesus, sure, but you also have to be circumcised if you want to be saved. That's legalism. What we talk about many times and define as legalism is really just preference. Sometimes it's preference. Oh, Pastor Paul, I mean, seriously, I, it doesn't matter if I watch that thing. It doesn't matter if I go to that place doesn't matter if I buy those things. What is the the difference? I mean, I'm not going to be legalistic about it. Jesus still loves me. And it's okay for me to buy that because, you know, I heard that it's not a bad thing. It's okay for me to watch that thing because, you know what, my wife and I or my husband and I, we agree that it's okay for us to do that together. It's okay for me to do these things and we justify things. And if anyone has something to say about it that's contradictory, it's a legalistic thing. But can I tell you, Scripture is so clear that there is truth and there is untruth, that there is holiness and there is sinfulness, and we have to walk in holiness. Now, be really careful about this when I say this. This is so important. Um, This is really, really, really important. But the reason why this matters and why we have to not be silent on sin is because relationship with God is the whole message of the Word of God. God wants you to be in relationship with him. He wants me to be in relationship with him. He wants nothing to separate you or I from relationship with him. The purpose of this is not to condemn us. It's not to squelch our fun or make us feel like we're worse off than we were before. The purpose is to say, no, no, no. When it's pure, it's as good as it could ever get. And that's what God is doing. He's conquered sin for you and I through his son on the cross so that we could be forgiven and he's bringing us back into relationship with him so that one day at the marriage supper of the lamb, as it says in Revelation, us and him are no longer separate. And in Revelation 21, God makes this declaration. I think it's going to be the greatest day of eternity when he stands there and he says, now there is no longer any separation between me and mankind. Basically, I'm paraphrasing or that I can dwell with him and he can dwell with me. I think God is just desiring that day to say, we're finally here. So anytime we cross the line and we continue to walk in sinful things or don't deal with sinful things, we're taking this pure vessel that God wants us to have and we're poisoning it. And we're poisoning it and we're poisoning it. And sometimes we justify the poison by saying, well, but we're okay with it. Or, you know, I don't want to be crazy legalistic about those things. Listen, If it's sin, it's sin. There are absolute truths in this world. And there are moral practices that God asks us to live by. 
And we have to ask ourselves, are we going to obey or are we not going to obey? It's so important for us to understand that and to practice that. It's so important for us to understand that. I'll give a couple examples of principles in just a moment. Number three, after we know God's word and remain, we don't remain silent on sin, we have to deal with our own sin before taking or before dealing with someone else's sin. Deal with your own sin before dealing with someone else's sin. If you want to keep from being a compromising Christian, deal with what's going on in your heart first before you address anybody else's. Matthew 7, 3 says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when you all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is a beautiful passage on how we address challenging situations where we confront people on sin that are believers and we do it in a godly biblical way. And the way he says to do it is look at yourself first, deal with yourself first, and then go to somebody else. And this is what happens here. When you do it this way, the two things that happen, number one, you get right with God. I get right with God. That's the first thing that happens. We get right with God. The second thing that happens is once you're right with God, you're in a good place to help someone else get right with God because your heart is towards them, is motivated by love and grace. And I can tell you when God's working on things through me, this does not mean that you've conquered all of your sinful things before you talk to someone. It means you're on the pathway. Sometimes you've repented and you're walking in a new way. Sometimes you've been walking for a long time. But God says, deal with the things in your own heart first. It brings you to a place of humility. It brings me to a place of patience. And it draws me to a place where I want to bring people to a place of restoration and redemption, not ridicule. You with me? That's so important for us to understand. Deal with your own sin first before dealing with someone else's. Number four, close every door to sin. Close every door to sin. No open doors, not even a hint. Remember, footholds become strongholds, and strongholds can dictate and determine your life. Every door to sin. And this sounds so legalistic. And I hear people use the term, but open doors are all around us. And I won't give examples of what they look like because I don't think that that's helpful, but I will give a couple scripture references just so that we know what scripture says about them. Ephesians 5, 1 through 4, Paul writes, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, he's saying, follow the example that Jesus set. Verse 3, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of any greed because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are all out of place, but rather thanksgiving. It's so clear that he makes no excuse and there's no wiggle room. He said, the way we're supposed to live... now." This is like, the bar is so high. I'm like, can I ever meet this level completely? And I think on this side of eternity, I can't. But that can be my goal. My goal is not to get as close as I can to the line before I sin. My goal is to get as far away from the line as I can so I can be as close to Jesus. And sometimes I kind of go back, but most of the time I want to go this way. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. Make it your goal to keep the vessel pure. Keep it pure. Don't even allow a drop of poison into that vessel. Because when you allow one in, it can grow and it can contaminate the whole thing. And then you're corrupted. He also tells us not just to empty ourselves, but to fill ourselves. We empty ourselves by saying no to those things. We fill ourselves by filling ourselves, uh, Philippians 4, 8. 
and 9 give us a direction. Finally, he says, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. It's a beautiful principle, and I wonder what would it be like if these two passages just hung in balance in my life each day to say, here are the things that he says I shouldn't even have a hint of in my life, and here are the things I should be focused on. How would my life look different? What would my relationship with God look like? How would your relationship with God change? Would it change? This is important for us to think about. All of these things are important And they help us continue to stay true to what God has for us. Why? Because it's about relationship, friends. It's about you knowing Jesus and being in relationship with him each and every day. He calls us to live an abundant life. And abundant living has to happen when, or does happen, when we try to stay pure to God's plan and pure to God's instruction. I'm going to ask the worship team to come as we get ready to close. There's a fifth thing I want to mention. Because keeping ourselves from compromising, yes, we need to know God's word. Yes, we need to no longer remain silent on sin, not just in our own lives, but to others as we see those things, not to allow them to penetrate, not just be okay to tolerate. Number three, we need to deal with our own sin before dealing with someone else's sin, and we need to close every door on sin. But the last thing I want to mention to you, and I think this is the most significant of all of them, is that we need to trust in the power of Jesus. You and I need to trust in the power of Jesus. And you say, why do you say that, Pastor Paul? Well, verse 17, I think, gives us a clue of why. Because look what Jesus says to those who follow his instruction. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, that's to the one who overcomes, to the one who puts this into practice and walks, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. There's three things he promises us in this passage to those who obey, those who walk and see what he does. He says, I'm going to give you hidden manna. Now, manna in the Old Testament was the food that Israel had when they were in the wilderness given to them by God. It was supernatural food. And what he's saying in the New Testament here is, if you obey these things, If you hold true, I'm going to sustain you. You don't have to do this by yourself. I don't have to do this myself. He is the one that will sustain each one of us. He is big enough and strong enough for you and I to be sustained by him. Amen? That's the foundation that we said and we sang about. We build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ. You don't have to try to do this on your own. He will sustain you, give you provision. Why? Because Jesus said he is the bread of life. He also made an allusion to a white stone. I'm going to give you a white stone. And in that time when this was written, white stones had a few meanings. But they mean two main things. One, it was access. You're given a white stone when you're having access to a royal banquet. And it was almost like a, a, a pass. You get in. This is your key to get into the, to the, the royal banquet. And he says, I'm going to give you a white stone. You're going to have access to the Father. You're going to have access to the throne. You're going to have access to the party and celebrate with us. The second thing that it was was a sign of victory because those that won 
those that competed in different events and things, especially in, in athletics and sports, the white stone was a symbol of victory. And what he's saying, if you do this, you will be victorious. You will win. You will be successful. And then I think the coolest thing is he says, and you're going to have a new name. And it's going to be written on that stone. And you're the only one who will receive that name. You know what that speaks to this morning, church? It speaks to the uniqueness of each one of us here today. You are not a number to God. I am not a number to God. I am a person created in his image to know him and to be known by him, to love him and be loved by him. Where every hair on my head is counted, where every action that I ever do will be recorded, where every tear that I cry will be captured, where every suffering or persecution that I would wrestle through will be seen. You hear where I'm going? You hear where I'm going with this? Your name is going to be written on there. Your name is going to be written, and your name is not going to be fear. Your name's not going to be condemnation. Your name's not going to be mistake. Your name's not going to be anxiety. Your name's not going to be pressure and weariness. Your name is going to be hope. Your name's going to be healing. Your name's going to be victory. Your name is going to be, the, the name that God gives you is the name of hope, love, joy. The name that God's going to give you is the, is the name of victory, the name to surpass every issue that could ever happen in your life now or later. And he gives it to you specifically, uniquely to you, because you are unique to him. Would you stand with me as we close? The worship team is going to close in a song here, and and we're not going to do that all together, but we are going to invite you to participate if you would like to. But I'm just going to ask our prayer partners to come to the front at this point. I'm going to just ask just for a moment, if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes as the prayer partners come up. And everyone's head's bowed in this room. Everyone's eyes are going to be closed. This isn't about what the people are doing around you. Please ask you just to follow along and do this with me. And I want to ask you, I'm speaking first to believers. I'm speaking to Christians. And I'm saying to you this morning, is the Holy Spirit showing you an area of your life that you've compromised? Is the Holy Spirit showing you something or things that you've let get in poison some of the purity that God's calling you to live the way he's calling you to live. If you're here today with everyone's eyes closed and head bowed, the Holy Spirit is saying to you, yes, there is an area that I believe you have compromised. Would you just slip your hand up and put it right back down? I'm not looking for anybody to hold them up. Just slip it up and put it right back down. Is there any part of your life that you think you've been compromising? Up and down. I just want to tell you that there are hands all over the place that have been you're not alone. You're not alone. And we pray for you today that God would not bring you condemnation. He doesn't ever condemn, but it would be a first step for you to go, you know what? It's time for me to do a different thing, to walk a different way, to embrace what he's called me to do so that I am not subject to corruption. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, can I encourage you? And I can say, Jesus came that we would have life, an abundant life. The only life that we could ever have comes from him. And if you're here today and you've never given your heart to Christ, 
made a decision to follow Christ, you can start that today. You can begin that today by simply coming forward and letting one of us pray for you after we dismiss. We will tell you how to get started and walk you through how to follow Christ for the first time. I'm going to pray, and when I'm done praying, the team's going to play this song, and you're welcome to stay and and just spend some time with the Lord, and you are welcome to come up for prayer for anything that you would like prayer for. Our prayer partners are here for anything, not just for what I spoke of. Would you bow with your heads again and pray with me? Father, we just say thank you. I love you. I pray in Jesus' name that we would very clearly hear your voice, that we would know what you're calling us to do. If there's any area of compromise, to know that you've called us to a higher place to be in deep relationship with you. God, show us how to lay those things down. Deal with them so that we can get closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to stay or you can come for prayer as we sing.